Well, the scripture I want to share this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, our first scripture. And uh, I want to talk about um, just as believers in the last days, just I think what the Lord has in store for us and just some of the things He's told us in advance that He wants us to know and wants us to be able to communicate to others who live in on these certain times and don't know the Lord. Um, also, before I forget, I just did a little uh, chart here about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, if you're interested in uh, understanding Revelation a little better, it's not a complicated book, but uh, sometimes it can seem so if you don't understand the timelines. I have a chart there available in the Welcome Center, and you're welcome to uh, take a copy if you like. We're not going to get into a lot of that stuff this morning. So, uh, so let's turn to the scripture of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter writes, and perhaps we could read this together. So we have seen and proved that what the prophets said came true. You would do well to pay close attention to everything they have written. For like lights shining in the dark corners, their words help us understand many things that otherwise would be dark and difficult. But when you consider the wonderful truth of the prophet's words, then the light of the dawn will dawn in your souls, and Christ the morning star will shine in your hearts. Peter says it's really important as the people of God that we understand Bible prophecy. We understand those things pertaining to these last days in which we live because he says it's like a light shining in a dark place. And we understand that we're living in a time when things are growing increasingly dark. And rather than being people who think that we have to live in that shadow or that confusion, that we understand the Lord speaks to his people through his word and gives us clear understanding so we can bring that same clarity and, of course, bring people to Christ through the events that are happening in our days. A lot of times people tend to think that Bible prophecy is really difficult to understand or difficult to put together, but I've found in my own life that if you simply allow the Word of God to say what it's saying, if you just take it at face value, then you discover it's not a whole lot more difficult to understand and read it than John 3.16. Now, if I was to hand you a bag of bones and ask you to put these old bones together, uh, where would you start? It's probably doubtful that you would start with maybe a toe or a finger or, you know, even the skull. What you'd probably do is start with the spine. If you can lay out the spine, then you can begin to see where the other elements go, the other parts of the body, and then you have the skeleton. I believe when it comes to Bible prophecy in the same way that the spine, when it comes to prophetic matters, it really is found in the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples in Matthew chapter 24, just a few days before his crucifixion. And it really is a passage that's so important that it's actually recorded three times in the New Testament. It's recorded also in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. And they're all different perspectives. They all, uh, they all kind of highlight some different things, but they're based on the same conversation that the Lord has. Now, as we saw last Sunday, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 3, that the satanic spirit that will one day empower Antichrist, it's already at work in our world today. It's in our work trying to destroy lives. It's in our work deceiving people. It's in our, in our world today dividing people. We've seen that very much, even recently. I also said last week that we're in a season that I believe we may still have some time to push back against this global evil, I believe, or agenda that really has begun to encroach upon our own nation. But having said that, when I read the Word of God, I believe it's also clear that we will eventually move into that final seven-year period of human history that Jesus spoke about. So the season we find ourselves in, kind of this bracket of time, it may be something that lasts another 50 years, it may last another five weeks, we have no idea, but the Lord is very clear that there seems to be a window. And, and again, keep in mind, oftentimes if we're not careful, we tend to tr interpret Bible prophecy through a Western context, right? Much of the church today around the world, they are, they are suffering for their faith. They're being persecuted for Christ. There's about a quarter of a million at least who die every single year simply for the fact that they follow Jesus Christ. So again, sometimes we have a bit of a skewed view as to what's happening, but uh, we just keep that in mind as we go through the Scripture. But I found that growing up in the church, many of us have assumed that once this world leader, whom the Bible calls the Antichrist, appears, that it'll be such a jolting event that everyone will recognize who it is, right? And we will reject him, we'll see his plan. But I really think in the context of the day we're living in today, and even some of the things that happen according to the Word of God, that it's probably more likely that the future will just be an intensification of the present, that a lot of the things we see mentioned in the book of Revelation or mentioned in prophetic scriptures, we're, we're kind of already seeing today in different ways. 
But what we're not seeing, perhaps, is the intensity of that, and we're not seeing, again, the global impact of that. There's a time that is coming, the Bible warns, that even what we're seeing, again, to the persecuted church around the world, that it will be global in nature. It'll no longer just be the 1040 window or some of these places, and so that's going to change, but by and large, it's still the same thing. Now, what we've gone through to date, I believe, and what likely is ahead of us, even in this coming year, I think are just indications of what is to come. And in fact, we've also seen over this past period of time as the Antichrist spirit continues to work, uh, we've seen what you might call an exercise in just acclimating humanity to this way of life that the Scripture talks about and acclimating us to a certain kind of governance that we're not used to but we will maybe grow accustomed to. Now, in this conversation that Jesus has uh, with the disciples in Matthew 24, he elaborates on a period of time, a seven-year period of time, that is actually first spoken of in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. Excuse me. Now, these good old Jewish boys, the disciples, they would have understood what Jesus was talking about in Daniel chapter 9, this, this, this context of time. And in fact, they were fully expecting that Jesus was going to fulfill it in his time with them. They were kind of blown away that, that you know, he wasn't sticking around and uh, doing what they expected the Messiah was going to do according to the prophets of old. Well, the angel Gabriel speaks to Daniel, and I'm reading the modern translation. It's a little bit easier for us to understand. But he says this, the angel Gabriel. He says, The Lord has commanded 490 years of further punishment upon Jerusalem and your people. Then at last they will learn to stay away from sin, and their guilt will be cleansed. Then the kingdom of everlasting righteousness will begin... And the most holy place in the temple will be rededicated as the prophets have declared. Now listen, it will be 49 years plus 434 years. So a total of 483 years, which is just seven years shy of that 490 he talks about. We get that? So that's just kind of seven years shy of that. He's talking about a total of 483 years. He says, from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. Who's the anointed one? As I told the first crowd, it's always Jesus, okay? The answer is always God if you're in church or Jesus. You can't go wrong. Okay, so the anointed one comes. Jerusalem's streets and walls will be rebuilt despite the perilous times. Then he says in verse 26, after this period of 434 years, okay, he's saying 483. Why? Because the 49 years are done. Now you've got 434. So after the second period of time of 434, which total is 483, you're following me? Okay, so after that 483 years, he says the anointed one, which is whom? Amen. Jesus will be killed, which we know is the crucifixion. His kingdom still unrealized. That's very important. Why is his kingdom still unrealized? Because as the disciples believed and the people of Israel is that when Messiah came, he was going to fulfill those 490 years and establish his kingdom on the earth at the time. They didn't see the church age coming. The prophets of old didn't see the church age coming. The disciples even didn't see the church age coming. Even John the Baptist, the greatest of all disciples, what did he do when he was in prison? He sent his disciples to Jesus and say, ask him, is he really the Messiah? <laughs> or should we be looking for somebody else because it's not coming together like we thought? Jesus said, it's okay, go tell John what you've seen right? The miracles and then and changing of hearts and God goes, oh, okay, I get it. It's the heart that God's working on. In any case, we know what Israel did in rejecting Jesus. And he says, a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Now, that's, I'll come back to that in just a second. Um, a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. They will be overwhelmed as with a flood and war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. The reason I pause there for a second is because when we finish this 483-year period, Jesus is crucified. The kingdom is yet unrealized. He will realize it at the end of our age, but at that time still unrealized. After he's crucified, the church age has started, and he says, a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. This is my personal opinion. I think it's wrongly interpreted when people read that and say, oh, that's applying to, to 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem. I don't believe it's re referring to that because it says this. It says, and a king will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. And he goes on to talk about this king a little bit. And the fact is, in our day, what's going to happen? We know that Israel is ready for it. We know we expect it according to Bible prophecy. The, the temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD, it's going to be rebuilt, right? So the temple will be rebuilt likely in our, our timeline, our, our time frame rather, because even a few years ago when Vanessa and I and a few others from the church went to Israel, it was rather fascinating. We went to the uh, Temple Institute 
Uh, it's a tour you can go through, and of course, it's Jewish, it's not Christian, they have no context of revelation and all this kind of stuff that we talk about and take for granted. But we talked to them afterward, and we know that everything needed in the temple, even the animals for sacrifice, they are all ready. We thought we were going through a museum of the artifacts of what it will look like one day. He said, no, these are the actual garments that the high priest is going to wear. This is the actual this and that. We are ready to build the temple. I said, when do you plan to build the temple? This was 2019. He said, our hope is in 2022 that we start to build the temple. So again, they don't have any context that we do as far as uh, Bible prophecy, but just in a matter-of-fact way. In fact, if you go on YouTube and you just search the third temple, you will see actual uh, advertisements from the Temple Institute and from the, from the uh, country of Israel advertising the soon-coming temple. You'll get a picture of what it's going to look like and all that kind of stuff. So it's very much on their radar. And so what I believe he's talking about here, what Daniel's talking about, is this church age happens, which he didn't see at that time. This church age happens. And then after that, there's going to come the building of the temple, and there's going to come this king, this ruler, who we identify as Antichrist, who is going to actually destroy it again, and, and on and on it goes. So at the end of the 483 years, 69 weeks in some translations, it's marked by the crucifixion of the Messiah. The church age is then inaugurated, and we're waiting for this final seven-year period to begin. Now, in verse 22, Gabriel says that he's come to help Daniel understand God's plans. And so he finishes with these words. And again, this is the king now in a modern day. This is not 70 AD, Titus, okay? He says the king will make a seven-year treaty, the seven years that remain, with the people, the people being Israel. But after half that time, he will break his pledge and stop the Jews from all their sacrifices, their offerings. Then, as a climax to all his evil, uh, terrible deeds, the enemy shall utterly defile the sanctuary of God. But in God's time and plan, his judgment will be poured out upon this evil one. So what has happened? And in my opinion, here you have the nation of Israel. They are captives now in Babylon. God sends a message through Gabriel to Daniel to say, listen, Daniel, we're just letting you know God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten your people. It looks like everything's over. And we can kind of get that feeling sometimes ourselves, eh? Well, look, where are you? Look, look what's happening. He says, hey, hey, don't worry about that. I'm in control. I know what's going on. He says, Daniel, it is not over. I still have a plan for my people. And in fact, if you know Jeremiah and the other prophets, they all kind of prophesied a similar, uh, similar promise, which was the Lord says, I will write my law on your hearts. I will be your God. You will be my people. Once and for all, we will, you know, be together and that you won't be going back and forth or be a, a nation that basically doesn't know me. So God assures them of this. The Apostle Paul actually echoes that promise in Romans 11 when he says the day is going to come one day when all of Israel will be saved. The nation of Israel is going to know their Messiah. They're going to know their God. So the question very simply becomes, is this 70th week of Daniel, which is a time of great trial, is it reserved exclusively for Israel? Now, some would argue that the church is not mentioned in the book of Daniel, therefore it can't be part of that final seven years. Well, I would argue, without trying to read into Scripture, that you might say it was mentioned in Daniel. I mean, he says this in verse 26. The anointed one will be cut off, his kingdom unrealized. Now, I know he's not mentioned in the church, but what is he saying? He's saying his kingdom doesn't, isn't fulfilled then. Something happens. There's, some, there's a gap there somewhere, Okay which we know, of course, was the beginning of the church age. And the other thought, too, sometimes is that, well, when Jesus spoke to the disciples on the Mount of Olives a, a few days before he was crucified, when he's talking to them in Matthew 24, well, technically, the church wasn't born yet because the church was born on the day of Pentecost, you might say, okay? So, really, the church wasn't there. So, therefore, everything he says must apply to Israel and not the church. But I believe when you just read Scripture at face value, what you understand is that while the audience to whom Jesus was speaking was unaware of this thing called the church age, Jesus was not. Remember in Matthew 16, what did Jesus say? I will build my church. You see, Jesus knew the church was going to be coming. He knew it was going to happen, even though they couldn't see it or fathom it, no more than we would have if we had lived in that day as well. So if you look at the last few chapters there of Matthew, you see in chapter 22 that Jesus had been speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and basically he's done with them. Okay, he knows as the leaders of what? They're not leaders of the church. They're leaders of Israel, right? Scribes, Pharisees, they have no time for Jesus. They're not going to receive him. Then you go to Matthew 23, and what does Jesus do? He talks to the crowds, and he talks to his disciples about those leaders. And then we come to Matthew 24, and it begins with these words. 
Will you read it with me? Jesus left the temple and was walking away when what? His disciples came up to him. So it's very important. It's the disciples who actually asked Jesus this question, and it's to the disciples that Jesus is responding. Again, are the disciples the leaders of Israel, or are they leaders of the church? I don't think it's a stretch to say, yes, they're leaders of the church, even at this point. So when Jesus uses that personal pronoun, if you read through Matthew 24, all 34 verses there, he uses the personal pronoun when he's speaking to them, you, you, you. 12 times. Why? Because he's speaking to them and he's speaking to all disciples down through the ages, to you and me. He's saying, this is the word to my disciples, to my followers. Now, a second question I believe is, does this mean that God's plan for the church and for Israel are the same? Let me be absolutely clear. The answer is no. But let me also be clear the church has never and the church will never replace Israel. God is a covenant-keeping God. God made a covenant with Israel. We read all through Scripture what he's promised for them. God is going to fulfill that at the end of the 70th week. But the Bible also says in Romans 11 that we as believers are called wild olive shoots, that we are grafted into that olive tree along with Israel. And so we very much share part of God's plan in those last days. In fact, I've said it many times, but if I were to ask you who are the two most hated people groups in the world, you would probably know. It's Christians and Jews, right? Our destiny is intertwined. We support Israel in a way that nobody else does, of course. We have that shared heritage. And so I believe that God uses this final prophetic week in the scriptures that we read about, number one, to bring Israel to repentance once and for all. But he also uses this period of time to refine his church, to empower his church for what I believe is going to be the greatest harvest the world has ever seen. And when Jesus comes for his church, he's not coming for a limping, weak sinful bride. He's coming for his people who without spot or wrinkle, who've been refined, and we will be gathered up together with the Lord in a blaze of glory. That's what the Lord has for us, I believe. Now, on two occasions, Jesus explains to his disciples the order of events that take place before he returns for his church or what we call the rapture. We know the word rapture is not found in the Scripture, just like the word trinity is not found in the Scripture. But it's a Latin word that simply means to be caught up quickly. For example, we might say that, you know, just turn to your spouse and say, I am so enraptured with you. Nobody moved, okay? <laughs> say, hey, I'm glad we get along. <laughs> or I'm glad we're still together. Well, that's the idea. Okay, it's the idea of being caught up with somebody or caught up with something raptured. And that's basically what this word means. Even though you find that exact word, you find the actual action in the scripture. So we have these two parallel passages, Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. Now, I'm not going to take time because I realize for many of our folks who have been glad tidings for a long time, I've brought teachings on this. In fact, if you want to go online, our website, uh, I did a series of four or five weeks, I think four weeks, called A Matter of Time. You can go into there and you'll find that. Uh, if you're looking for the link, just send us an email. We'll, we'll get that to you. But uh, so we can, we can do that. I don't want to be redundant, repeat a lot of stuff that I've shared in the past, but I also want to give kind of a, a, a bird's eye view of, uh, of where we stand on this, um, just for those who maybe are new. And again, we're talking about after from last week, we're just talking about now this final seven-year period. But I want you to keep in mind that as you read Revelation 6 and as you read Matthew 24, you'll discover you put them side by side, you have the exact same order of events that actually lead up to the return of Christ. What's important to understand, though, is that when you read Revelation, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciple again, his disciple John, not a leader of Israel, leader of the church. He's speaking to his disciple John, and they are in the spirit realm. And so what John has seen in the spirit realm is what the Lord has shown will happen in that realm before it breaks into the natural realm, right? We understand living in the natural realm, the spiritual realm is greater, and things break in from that and manifest in a different way. So you have Revelation 6, Jesus talks about what's happening in the spirit realm, but then when he's sitting down with his disciples in Matthew 24, Peter, James, John, Andrew, he's saying, listen guys, this is what it's going to look like in the natural realm in which you live. That's why, for example, you see in chapter 5 of Revelation, Jesus has a scroll in his hand. The scroll is closed with seven wax seals. Okay, we're all familiar with that in, in that day, uh, even in the days 
the kings and stuff. You know, you take the wax and melt it and put your signet ring there to, to close it off. Nobody could break that seal. Well, Jesus is the one who has the authority to break that seal. And what's contained in that scroll is the wrath of God or the judgment of God that will come upon Satan, his kingdom of Antichrist, and for those who've taken the mark. Well, before that scroll can be opened, all six of those seals must be broken one at a time. And that's why when you read in Revelation chapter 6, for example, it will say, you know, he broke the first seal, and I saw a rider on a white horse, right, going about conquering and to conquer. Well, what does Jesus say the very first thing the disciples are going to see? You're going to see false Christ, right? This rider on a white horse is pretending to be the Savior, just like Jesus is the true rider on a white horse, right? So you had the first seal broken in the spirit realm, but in the physical realm in which we live, this is how it manifests. Then the second horse, the second seal is open. The second horse is the black horse, and he has power to bring war, right? And then what does Jesus say in Matthew 24? And he says, after the false Christ, then there will be wars and rumors of wars. You see that? So just to understand, it's not complicated. If you put those two scriptures together, you have the exact same order of events. One Jesus is sharing with his disciple John. The other he's sharing with the other four disciples, leaders of the church. This is what's going to happen, he says, if you want to know what is the sign of my coming. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke passages, what Jesus is sharing is the answer in response to the disciples' question. And what is the disciples' question? Read it with me, Matthew 24. They said, tell us. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign that it is time for you to come and for the, this age to end? Okay? So what they're asking is something that sometimes Jesus didn't give them. You know, he would say, well, trust or whatever. But no, he says, okay, you're asking for what is the actual tangible sign that alerts you to my coming. He says, I'm going to explain it to you. And that's what he does in Matthew 24. And in fact, when you read the book of Revelation, in my opinion... The entire book of Revelation is a response to the opening statement. What does Revelation 1-1 say? Will you read this with me? The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, some translations say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we know in the book of Revelation, as in the entire word of God, we see Jesus all through the word of God. We understand that. But if you're going to be grammatically accurate, that preposition of doesn't mean, doesn't mean uh, a revelation, it means, it means a revelation from. Like in French, we use the de in the preposition. It means of or from. And so basically what he's talking about is not primarily a revelation about Jesus Christ, even though we see him in Revelation, but it's a revelation from Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Listen, God has given Jesus a revelation that he wants to share with you. Can you remember the Gospels? Jesus says, no man knows the day of the hour when the Son of Man is coming. Only the Father in heaven knows that. Okay, Jesus as a human being, though he operated fully in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, obviously, he said, I don't know the times or the seasons. But then we come to Revelation 1, and what does it say? Now God has given the revelation to Jesus to give to his servants. And I believe in that, he begins to lay out for the sake of his servants, the word is doulos, that's us, followers of Jesus Christ, the things that are about to come. He shows those things to us. That's why it's very important to understand it's explicitly intended to be a revelation for us to understand things as we live in these last days so we can live with a sense of clarity. We can live with a sense of mission and purpose. And when things around us, like Peter says, when they ask you, what is the reason for the hope that you have? We can say, hey, you got a couple minutes, let's sit down with the word of God. He spells it all out, right? You don't have to say, well, just be ready. No, no, let me show you from the word of God. He's told us these things in advance so when they happen, you can be comforted, you can be strengthened, you can know he knew in advance and he shared these things with you in order that you might be strong. Well, as you read through the order of events, there are a few things that become really clear. Again, this is just my opinion, okay, from my studies of Scripture in the last, probably the last 25 years. There are different views when it comes to the actual timing of the Lord's return. Uh, we're going to mention uh, next week, but uh, my father-in-law, Pastor Penny, if some of you wouldn't know Pastor Mrs. Penny, the minister here for a number of years, uh, wrote an absolutely beautiful book called My Father's House. Is that okay, Dad, if I say that? Um, a beautiful book. In fact, it's one of two books that I actually have read in one sitting. Uh, the other was a, a Tale of Two Cities. Now, have you ever read that book? I'm just kidding. I didn't read The Tale of Two Cities. That's like 700 pages. I think I read Jonathan Livingston Seagull. It's like 75 pages in grade five, and it has pictures. Um, beautiful, beautiful book. But when you get toward the end of the book, we will disagree on the actual time of the Lord's return, the, the role of the church, the role of Israel, and so on. And that's perfectly fine. 
Michael Smith, some of you know, a great author in the body of Christ and, and communicator. Uh, he actually believes that the Lord is coming at the end of the seventh trumpet. So he's coming at the end of the seven-year period. I disagree, but that's okay. The most important thing I believe for the body of Christ in these days in which we live is for us to be students of the Word and for us to determine what we feel the Lord is speaking to us about this season. Does that make sense? Because you're going to have some different views. It doesn't have to be contentious. I mean, you can get along. The basis of faith are the most important thing. But the thing that concerns me is that it's a topic where the average person not only doesn't delve into because they think they can't understand it, but to be honest with you, I've talked to a lot of pastors who don't believe what I believe, but the problem is they can't walk you through any other option. It's just more what's going to pan out. And I don't really think that's a healthy place to be. You know, even if you don't have all your T's crossed and I's dotted, I still think as believers, especially as leaders, we need to be able to sit down with people and say, according to my study of the Word of God in these last days, this is what I believe. Now, we know ultimately that the important thing is that we love Jesus, right? That we're walking with Him and all those kind of things. But I think sometimes how we view, especially if we don't get into the Word, how we view the last days, if we're not careful, can kind of, you know, create attitudes or dispositions that may not always be the healthiest. So, let's just look at a couple of these. And the first is that Daniel's 70th week, or just a, a couple of things I want to highlight. In my opinion, is that Daniel's 70th week does not begin with a rapture. Now, even the late Dr. John Walford, who is one of the founding scholars of the Pre-Trib View, wonderful teacher, wonderful Bible teacher, wonderful man of God, he said this, one of the problems that faith face both pre-tribulationism and post-tribulationism is the fact that their point of view is an induction based on scriptural facts rather than an explicit statement of the Bible. What he means simply by that is that when I study all the other scriptures, it would seem in my understanding that the church has gone before, before the seven-year start. He says the only problem is we can't find a single scripture that actually says that. So in other words, we have to kind of induce that it must be, it must be there. That's his opinion anyway. And of course, when we induce something, we're, we're kind of, you know, forcing it a little bit. But I don't think we have to do that with God's Word, which to me seems clear. He talks about it, uh, Daniel's 70th week, I believe in verse uh, 27 of chapter 9. He says, this king will make a seven-year treaty with the people. So here we have a scripture that actually denotes that exact same period of time of seven years that we're thinking, okay, we know that has to be fulfilled, but we're saying, when, how does this start? When does this start? I could be wrong, but it seems from what Daniel is saying is that this world leader who's identified as the evil one or antichrist, he will make or sign or confirm a covenant for seven years with the people of Israel. And so in my understanding, I think if I just, if I just read Scripture at face value, he seems to be saying that when we see this world leader make that covenant, then the prophetic time clock begins again, and we start that seven years. Again, it's just a thought. You need to study Scriptures as well. The second thing I think that's clear from Daniel's 70th week is that it is not seven years of God's wrath. That's a common mistake because, you see, if I, again, induce that it's seven years of wrath, then I can say, according to 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9, well, the church isn't here then because we are not subject to God's wrath. We are his children. We're not subject to that, and I believe that 100%. But that's only if that seven years is actually God's wrath. Now, I have a chart here just to give you an idea and again, you can pick up a, uh, the chart I have outside there on your way home. Uh, and if you're watching online, you can just email us, and we'd be glad to send you a copy as well. I just have it printed on 11 by 17 paper here. But as you read through Matthew 24, I believe in just a natural face value reading. It makes it clear that the first three and a half years is simply a time of tribulation. And then exactly at the three and a half year mark, the world enters into what Jesus called now a time of great tribulation. And then the latter part of that, just after the Lord returns for his church, I believe, is when the wrath of God is actually poured out. So if you look at the seven-year period scripturally, the actual wrath of God is a relatively short period of time at the end. And one of the reasons is, is it's so cataclysmic as well uh, in, in the nature of his judgment. For example, let's go to Matthew 24, 4 to 13. I'm not, I'm not reading uh, every verse here, and I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, being editorial here and doing this just for the sake of time. Just grab the highlights, but you can read it on your own. Matthew 24, 4 to 13. Jesus said this, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars, for a nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes. All of these are what? They're just the beginning of birth pains, right? What's the question, Lord? What is the sign of your return? Jesus says, okay, it's not yet, but this is the start. This is the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. 
I meant to skip that part, sorry. Um, many will fall away and betray one another. That would have been a good line to leave out, eh? And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word is sojo, it means delivered. Um, and again, look at these last couple lines. I mean, isn't that very much the spirit today? There's a spirit of lawlessness. There's a spirit of perversion. There's, you know, all those spirits in our culture today. And there are many believers who are lulled into that spirit, right? And what happens? Our love begins to grow cold for the Lord, right? So we have this form of godliness, Paul says, but we have no power. And as people live in the last days and the dark days, we need to be people who have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through our lives, both what he's doing in our life and what he's doing through our lives. So that's that period of tribulation. Well, all this takes place if you read your Bible. And again, we're online. You can play this again if you like and slow it down and, and, uh, or just fast forward through it. Um, and just watch the worship. That's always the best part. But if you take your Bible out, you'll discover that all these things happen in the first three and a half years. And then Jesus says we move into a time what he calls the great tribulation. And it's great in the nature of its scope. For example, we know the fastest growing churches in the world today are Iran. Afghanistan, China, these places. If you've ever read or watched a uh, documentary, it's called Sheep Among Wolves. It's the church in Iran. And one of the amazing things that so impacted me was just at the beginning, but basically what what, 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 what they were talking about was a woman is leaving for whatever she's doing that day, going to the market, whatever. And she has a very simple understanding with her husband. It's like, like, like this, honey, you know our agreement. If I'm captured, if I'm taken away to jail, I know I'll be beaten, I know I'll be raped, I will probably be killed. Don't come after me. I know I'm giving my life for Jesus. They have that understanding. So there's no actual suffering, I believe, that we're going to go through that is not, as Scripture says, common to man, whether temptation, trial, whatever. The difference is, is that at this period of time that Jesus speaks about this great tribulation, it will begin to spread around the whole world. The Western nations won't be immune anymore to what we're already seeing happen in the body of Christ in other parts of the world. That's also why we need to be praying for those in the persecuted church. The day is coming. We will need their prayers as well. And they are, they are praying for us. In fact, I've shared this before, but I, I remember a couple times when I've been in Cuba, pastor would say, Pastor, we're praying for you. I remember asking once, like, why are you praying for us? Like, you guys have it so hard. He says, no, no, you have it more difficult. You see, it's one thing for us to serve Jesus in the midst of our hardships, but it must be so hard for you to, to, to walk with Jesus in the midst of your riches and your comforts. And we pray against the spirit that is deceiving you and lulling you to sleep. You know, I don't mean that critically, but they understand that's a different kind of battle as well. The enemy will use whatever he can to slow us down. So Jesus says in, in verses 15 to 22, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and of course he's talking about the desecration of the, of the holy of holies in the temple, that when he does that, he actually begins to reveal who he really is. So at the three and a, up to three and a half years, from what we can gather, he's kind of deceiving the world, and oh yeah, he's still the global leader, but at the three and a half year mark, it's okay, I get it on with my agenda. And so he goes, desecrates the temple, Israel sees he's not the real Messiah, and so they, 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 they know who he is by now. So stand in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's talking about those who are in Israel. It's going to be like the A-palm bomb drop there, the A-bomb whatever, and that's going to be the epicenter, and it's going to spread from there. So flee. And then there will be what? Great tribulation. You see, we're moving into the second phase. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of who? For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. I believe the scripture says we are the elect. We will be raptured. Now remember again the disciples' question in verse 3. What will be the sign that it is time for you to come again and for this age to end? So keep in mind, everything that Jesus has said up to this point is for the purpose of answering that question. He's not evading it. He's leading up to it. And he says in verse 29 and 30, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. What's he saying? When you see those celestial signs, you know. That's why the scripture says, lift up your eyes, your redemption draws near. Right? You see this cosmic stuff going on and the world's going, what's going on? And we go, it's Jesus. He's coming. This is the sign he gave us. And then he says this, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. I just love, God's so dramatic. I just love this. I mean, Jesus is appearing, right? But what does he do? He just shuts down all the lights, turns off the power, 
and you've got this black canvas of darkness. And just like when the angels broke in upon the scene and announced to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, here Jesus breaks into the darkness and the whole world sees him for who he is. Now, we'll continue reading here. Then will appear in, in heaven the sign of the, of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes, of, this is important, of the earth will mourn, and they will what? See the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, some would say, well, that's when Jesus comes to the battle of Armageddon, but we'll see it's not because it's a totally different environment of what happens here. Here we have verse 31, which I believe is the rapture of the church. When he comes in that manner, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, just so we can be perfectly clear, make no mistake that this is the event of the rapture, you compare those wording, that wording to what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, which is the classic rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Will you read this with me? The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And those who have died believing in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will be gathered up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now we read that. Oh, that's the classic rapture passage. Does that passage actually match the Lord coming at Armageddon, or does it match the Lord's words here to the disciples at the end of Matthew? He uses the same words. He will send out his angels with what? A loud trumpet call. That's what Paul says, the trumpet call of God. He will gather his elect from the four winds. Paul says, after that, we will be gathered up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He's talking about, I believe, the church talking about believers. Now, the same event is also spelled out in Revelation chapter 6. But John adds something in verse 15 to 17 that when this happens, here's his perspective. The kings of the earth, the great men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the faith of him, face of him who sits on the throne and from what? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So we have that final segment of the Lord's wrath being poured out. Now, let me just uh, sneak in a third question here that sometimes crosses our mind, and that is, how can we know when Jesus is coming if Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night? Doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus is coming as a thief in the night? Now, the important thing we know about God's Word is it's very clear. And the Word of God says, if you ask, is Jesus coming as a thief in the night? The Bible unequivocally says, Yes and no. Okay? Let's look at the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 to 6. Paul says, you know very well that the day of the Lord comes again will be a surprise, like a thief that comes in the night. There you go. While people are saying we have peace and we are safe, they will be destroyed quickly. Who are these talking about? People that don't know the Lord, right? But look at verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, disciples, are not living in darkness, so that that day will not surprise you like a thief. You get that? This day won't surprise you. You are all people who belong to the light and to the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, and this is very important. So we should not be like other people who are sleeping but we should be what? Like Jesus said in Matthew 24, in light of all these things, be alert, be awake, be sober, understand the days in which you live because it's not about just getting out of here. We will join brothers and sisters around the world, not only in their suffering, we will join them in the greatest move of the Holy Spirit that this world has ever seen, a church that is purged and refined and on mission and in power, seeing signs and wonders that we've never imagined and seeing the greatest harvest of souls in human history. That's what we get to look forward to. And I want to encourage you, if you have children, or if you don't have children because you're afraid of what's coming, fear not. What I mean by that, the things the Scripture is speaking of, it could be 50 years away. It could be five years away. But it doesn't matter. Your child was not born because you and your spouse decided to come together and have a child. 
Before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And before this generation was ever in their mother's womb, Jesus knows them. Jesus knows who he's birthing into this world. Jesus knows the generation that he is raising up. Jesus knows more than we do what he will do through a generation that is completely surrendered to him and powered by the Holy Spirit. He knows that. He's not afraid. He knows that and he's excited about that. And I want my children, I want my grandchildren to look into a future with hope and to understand how great is the God that they serve. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3, this was always one of those speed bump scriptures for me where I'd read it and I'd say, whoa, it doesn't seem to line up with what I was told. But he says, Paul says this, don't let anyone fool you in any way. The day of the Lord, what's the day of the Lord? The rapture of the church and the wrath of God poured out. It will not come until two things happen. The turning away from God happens and the man of evil appears. I believe with all my heart, just as many of the old preachers of old, Spurgeon and all those guys, I believe the church will be in confrontation with Antichrist in the last days. And so that final seven-year period is, comp is comprised of tribulation, great tribulation, and God's wrath. And I believe we will know when the time of the Lord's return is soon at hand. Now, I know Jesus said no man knows the day of the hour, and I absolutely agree with that, which I'm sure really impresses Jesus that I agree with him. But, uh, but I'm not contradicting that. What I believe Jesus is simply saying is this, listen, you can't set dates. You can't set dates. And we know that's human nature. We know it's been done down through history. People have sold everything and gone to a mountain somewhere because somebody told them Jesus is coming. Remember about 10 years ago? Remember it was announced that Jesus was coming on the May long weekend, right? We know as Christians that wasn't going to happen. Why? Because of God's word? No. The Lord knows we're busy on long weekends. It's not a good time to come. We have plans. <laughs> we're on vacation. We're, you know, I mean, it sounds ludicrous, right? But we don't set those dates. And that's what I believe Jesus was talking about. You can't be set in dates. But what he did say is, listen, when you are actually in the season, when everything's winding down, when you are, as the Scripture says, being put to death by the lawless one, by the Antichrist, who has, who's able to prevail over the saints for a season, in that time you're looking up. And you're beginning to see things intensify, move toward what Jesus said, this will be the sign. There's nothing wrong with us understanding that, you know what, when that season happens and we see those signs, we know the Lord is coming. We lift up our eyes and look for him because we know what we see according to the scriptures. That's not, that's not setting dates. That's understanding the season. It's understanding the sequence of events. I mean, even the Magi who, who came the first time to, to find this Jesus, what were they doing? They weren't picking a time or a date. They read the scriptures. They saw the stars. They said, hey, this is what they spoke of. And then we, we know the whole story. And I believe in the same way we, we will be able to discern those signs. And, and rightfully so, because the Lord wants us to be encouraged by the fact that I've told you these things in advance so when they happen, you can be built up. You can be strong and say, I told you about this, right? I told you about this. What does that mean? It means I'm ahead of you. I know what's happening. I know how to prepare you. Okay? Now, I'm going to close with this, because this is really the exciting part for me. And that is that on the very day, if you read Revelation 12 and 13, you'll see that a couple things happen at the three and a half year mark. He moves into the temple. He desecrates it. Showing who he really is, he turns against Israel. Then, the scripture says, that he turns against her offspring. Who's that? That's us. We are the offspring of Abraham. We are people of faith. He turns against the church. That's the time of great tribulation begins. We don't know how long it's going to be until the Lord comes. It may be six months. It could be a year and a half or two. We don't know. We just know it's time of great tribulation. But at that three and a half year mark, he desecrates the temple, turns on Israel. He also turns on the church. And you'll read in Revelation 13, what does he do? Then he forces his mark on the global population. So in other words, showing his true colors, his wrath, that's really what the great tribulation is. It's Satan's wrath against mankind. He's doing all these things. But here's the cool part. On ex you're saying there's something cool in this? <laughs> On that exact day, and we know this because the scripture says that these people that show up are there for three and a half years, 1,260 prophetic days, which is three and a half years. On the very day that Satan shows his true colors, and I've got you, what does the Lord do? He causes two witnesses to appear on the earth, who we believe are Moses and Elijah. Could be somebody else, but they seem to be that. Look at the scriptures, wind down. Revelation 11. He says, I will give power to my two witnesses. 
And they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years in the Jewish calendar. Clothed in sackcloth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. These have power to shut heaven, that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy. And that's why they kind of think maybe Elijah, he did that. And they have power over the waters to turn into blood. Moses did that. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. What is the Lord saying? When all hell is breaking loose, church be encouraged, these two guys are on your team. They're going to be moving in a power that the Antichrist can't resist. Whatever they command, whatever they do, it is done. And the reason that excites me is because in what seems to be the world's darkest hours, God never leaves the world without a witness. During that whole time, what do you have? Antichrist is pulling this hero because he never gets to consolidate anything. The church, the bride, is always a thorn in his side. And now these two witnesses. And we're seeing the Lord do incredible, incredible things in that day. I'm going to close with a quote by Smith Wigglesworth. Many of us remember him. He was a great evangelist, a miracle-working power, just a man who loved Jesus. And he gave a prophecy once, a vision that he saw. He died in 1947. This was, I think, about maybe 20 years or so before he died. But he thought this might be fulfilled within 100 years of his own life. And he said this. He said, I see the greatest revival in the history of mankind coming to planet Earth. Maybe as never before. And I see every form of disease healed. I see whole hospitals emptied with no one there. Even the doctors are running down the streets shouting. They will bring the sick to churches where they allow the Holy Ghost to move. No man will say, so many, so many, because nobody will be able to count those who come to Jesus. No disease will be able to stand before God's people. It will be a worldwide situation, not just local. A worldwide thrust of God's power and of God's anointing upon mankind. Does that ring true with your spirit? And again, you know, I know it's human nature to say, well, Pastor, when are all these things going to start happening? I don't know. Again, it can be 30, 40 years down the road. Things can turn upside down tomorrow, friends. We can be living in a whole different world. Who knows? We don't know. So how do we stand? Let me close this one last scripture. Why don't you read it with me? Peter writes, have reverence for Christ in your hearts and honor him as Lord. That's how you stand. You see, Paul goes on to say later on in the Thessalonians that there are many who fall for a delusion. Why? Not because God's trying to fool them. He says because they don't love the truth and so be saved. And one of my fears in the body of Christ in the Western church at least is that we don't love the truth. We know the truth. But when push comes to shove, we still do what we want. We justify our sin. We justify our unbelief. We justify our apathy. And the Lord is saying, don't you get it? Don't you get it? I mean, can't you look on the horizon and see what's coming? I'm trying to strengthen you. I'm trying to get the junket of your life. I'm trying to get you established in me and in your faith. I want you to stand, but you've got to listen to the little things I'm speaking to you. You've got to reestablish the Lordship of Jesus Christ so when he speaks to you, it's not I'll think about it. It's yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever you've got to do, Lord, take it. Increase, I will decrease, whatever you got to do. That's what he's saying to the church. And friends, let me just say as your pastor as well, and I encourage you in a couple weeks' time, we have Adam Shevsky coming with us uh, for the discipleship, for training, equipping, activating, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Don't look at these things as optional. They're not meant just to be programs or something to take in if you feel like it. We're saying the Lord is trying to activate his church. The time is over of celebrity pastors and celebrity leaders up here entertaining and having all the gifts. He's never intended it to be that way. He's always intended every single child of God to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit in their gifts. Wherever you go, speaking, prophesying, healing the sick, words of knowledge, he intends that for all of us. That's just normal. And so as the Lord stirs these things, I beg of you, don't take a posture that, oh, I'm busy that week, and I've, you know, maybe some other time, that's not really me. Lord's saying, yes, it is you. I want you to awaken to who you are. You're not just a good little boy or girl for Jesus. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You're a man or woman of God clothed in the armor of righteousness. You have power. You have weapons that are not of this world. It's to identify and overthrow the powers of darkness. That's what I've saved you for. And it'll be a glorious day in the day ahead, I believe. Yes, there'll be refining in the body of Christ. Yes, there will unfortunately even be a falling away. 
But I think the fallen away is not those who don't have strength in the Lord to stand. The fallen away is those who've established a pattern in their walk with God to not love truth. To serve God on their terms, when push comes to shove, to still do what they want to do. But those who know their God, those who understand there's anointing in times of trial that settles upon your life. It's like Stephen, his face shone like an angel. They were stoning him to death. Your face doesn't shine like an angel because you've reached some level of spiritual superiority. It shines like an angel because you know what it is to walk with Jesus. And when the time of trial comes, there's just a grace that settles upon you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Rather than going the other way, doing your own thing, in difficult times, what do you do? You bow your knee and you say, Jesus, I don't understand, but I want to honor you. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand where you are, but I know your word is true. Lord, I don't want to give an inch of ground to the enemy. Whatever you've got to do to refine me, whatever you're using through this to, to grow me to the fullness of Christ more in me, Lord, I submit to you, not my will, but your will be done. Those are the people who will stand, even at a time we wonder, how can I stand? You will, after, after having done all, you will stand. You will stand in the power and the assurance of the Holy Spirit because he's real to you, because you've learned today to say yes to Jesus when he speaks to your heart. That's all it is. Can we stand together? Thank you for your patience. I know I've been longer this morning. We'll get back to something really encouraging next week. I'm going to ask the ministry team if you come. We just always want to give you opportunity if you, to receive prayer. So ministry team, will you come? Most important, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. I understand the stress and the anxiety that we can feel sometimes and the events of the world going around us. But friend, I want to encourage you. Jesus told us these things in advance so when they happen, we know that he's in control. And there's no safer place you can be in life than in Jesus. He's your tower He's your fortress, the Bible says. And it's through a personal relationship with him that you can find a strength and a peace and a hope that you never imagine. But you get to surrender the kingdom of your own heart and say, Jesus, be king of my life. If that's your desire, we'd love to pray with you this morning. If you have any other need, we'd love to pray with you as well. But as the worship team closes with this song, can I invite you just one last time to close your eyes and just do business with the Holy Spirit. If there's any area you're messing around, just say, Lord, I know I seem to pray this prayer every single week, but Lord, I pray by your grace, let those things fall away. Give me victory, O oh God, I pray. Help me to be established in my faith, to know you. I reject religiousness. I reject even a Christian lifestyle. I want Jesus. I want to consecrate Jesus in my heart. I want you to be Lord. That's what it's about. So just make that your prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your precious people. I thank you for your glorious church and the glorious future. And Lord, we bow our heart and we pray for our brothers and sisters who are in chains. Brothers and sisters around this world who even at this moment may be faced with the most difficult choice. We pray for grace. We pray for grace, O oh Lord, for those whom you want to stand, even at the cost of their own lives. That as they want to, Lord, I know that they would stand strong and be a witness for you that their face would shine like an angel even now. We lift them up and we thank you for them, Lord. Just seal your word in our hearts, I pray, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get the sermon as soon as it's released. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com. For live streams and other videos, check out the GT Moncton YouTube channel and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's going on. God bless.